As a performer, your body is there. Hi, I'm Mad Kate, and you're listening to Sweat. Sex, work, extraction, art, theatrics. Sweat is a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body at work, where work is defined as the labor of survival, the labor of care, creativity, and capital A, art. How exactly do we define our work, and how does that work entangle and circumscribe our sexual identities, our creative lives, and the ways in which we provide care? How do we perform? Tasks, acts of care, and identities. My hope is that these conversations are a means to speak between intersectionalities by anchoring through our always, already, and ever-pervasive sexualized and racialized bodies, our working bodies, our creative bodies, and our performative bodies. I hope that they contribute to dialogues which normalize sex work as work and all work as deserving of respect, healthy conditions, and a living wage. Whether I'm an artist or not, I am also identifying as a freelancer for a long time. And I'm sure that that's tied to being an artist because you're trying to always like preserve your freedom. Freedom in the sense of the way that that is related to location, moving through the world. This episode features a conversation I had with artist Erica Dellenbach in 2021 while we were both staying at Perfocre's International Artist Residency in Kumasi, Ghana. Erica is an experimental filmmaker, dancer, and interdisciplinary performance artist currently based in Tucson, Arizona. They approach film as a devotional practice and use body-based performance and dance collaboration as a method of research, connection, and mutual evolution. Their works mine relationships to power and erotics and explore fluid consent as a generative source of form and narrative. I feel reward growing with other people and making work that's really drawing things from people, drawing things out of people and really giving them a space to be vulnerable and really like changing them, like witnessing evolutions in the people I'm working with. Much of our conversation reflects this particular moment in 2021 and how we dealt with the struggle to survive as artists. We wrestle with whether or not being an artist is a identity or a discipline, an ability to survive. We speak about performing the body in different contexts, the body as creative director of one's own work, the body as performing body in other artists' work, and the body as a working body whose gender and sexuality may be rendered invisible. Yes, I do consider myself an artist, finally. So you haven't been considering yourself an artist your whole life? Mm, I've, I've always felt that I'm an artist, but I've had a lot of uh, hesitation in terms of yeah, telling people that or identifying myself that way. Also, I've thought a lot about how the word artist is something that I've noticed that it's something that people don't actually say very often. They don't say, I am an artist, unless you're asking for maybe an occupation mm-hmm. on some form. Mm-hmm. You know, you're always specifying and trying to hold your uh, forte, mm-hmm. align yourself with your particular field or medium. What what was it for you that changed your sense of feeling I am not an artist or however you felt around yourself before to feeling you can really accept that title? The first thing that I want to say is like about having a body of work and actually being able to look and feel that I finally have a body of work and not just these kind of fragmented impulses um, and experimentations. Uh, I think when I really started 
there was a moment in my life when I was 21 that I really decided to commit to dance and film around the same time. Because up until then, it was always something I felt, well, since I'm not going to be able to make a living from that, you know, it's always going to just be a practice for me that I'm going to continue. But I never really thought very uh, critically about that being even actually a binary. I just always felt I know that I'm an artist, but I don't know that I will actually like live as an artist or how much I will live as an artist or if I will be able to live off being an artist any, any day. But then I realized actually, when I think back, it was through these conversations I was having with uh, my old roommates where she had expressed to me that if you're not making your living as an artist, then you're not really an artist, you know? And it's something that you can actually, you have to practice and enact to be that. Even if you had, it's not just like some temperament or some orientation or tendency or sensibility. It's really something, it's a commitment. Mm. So it has a relationship to capitalism. Yeah, for sure. Um, Which is, that's the conversation, you know? Yeah, it's like who gets to be an artist, which is something that's, living in New York really started to realize that I don't know if I can afford to be an artist. I don't know if I'm good enough to be an artist because my work is not making money for me, you know, for so long. And I thought if I'm not, I got into this crisis in New York where I was like, if I, if I can't live off of my work, then I'm just, I just can't, I just can't be an artist then, you know? And I started to really have this time where I was, I was basically like trying to, I was, I was really considering heavily breaking up with art, you know, and just like ceasing making work. And I just felt like I didn't make it, you know? So I have to stop now um, and get real. Also, whether I'm an artist or not, I'm, I, I am also identifying as a freelancer for a long time. And I'm sure that that's tied to being an artist because you're trying to always like preserve your freedom you know, so mm-hmm. that you can freedom in a sense of the way that that is related to location, like moving through the world, for me at least. So the freelance work was my trying to preserve my ability to capture and pursue impulses that usually had to do with leaving where I was living. So that was really tied to my practice, like just opportunities to share work or work with other people or learn something. But yeah, I think that it's impossible to talk about like essence of, you know, being an artist or something and just like in this compartmentalized way. Because yeah, you're right. It's so tied to capitalism and the ability to support yourself with it. So you were, you mentioned that you, you know, you've been a freelancer for a long time. Yeah. So you're talking about this bleeding between doing other things that you wouldn't consider artwork, but you would yeah. consider work. Yeah. So when did you start becoming a worker body what was your first job my first job was when I was 15 and I started working at an old folks home as a waitress so I learned to carry the platter over my shoulder and I did that while I was in high school so I was like a sophomore in high school I was part-time and then the next job that I had after that was working at Michael's craft store as a cashier (laughs) Um, I did that for like a year or two or a year and a half. And then I worked as a janitor for a few years, actually, at a concert venue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So have you ever had a period of time where you haven't had a job? Um, yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's always kind of hard to say, like, 
that you don't have a job, you know, because even as a freelancer, there's an imposter syndrome, like, mm-hmm. well, there's an imposter syndrome of self, like, am I a self-sustaining person or not, you know, and also living in artist spaces where the costs are so low, you know, to live, it's quite easy to exist in those spaces. So you don't, it, that also creates a situation where you just don't actually have to make that much money. You know, so it's easier to get by as a freelancer. But if you lose access to these spaces, which are already very precarious spaces, and you think, well, the imposter syndrome comes from like not being self-sustaining because it's like, if I lost this space, where what the fuck would I do? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what skills do I have? And how... Like imposter syndrome around like your ability to survive yes. as a human? Yes. Kind of like to be an adult? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Exactly that. <laughs> Sorry, I cut you a bit because I just wanted to clarify. No, it's okay. That's what it is, you know? And I think that that's um, also always been tied. I get guilt around being an artist, you know, that you're not contributing enough to society. And if your art, again, it's like if your art isn't making money, your art's not reaching people, you know, for an extended period of time. And you're not climbing some ladder, having some visible proof that you're climbing a ladder. And I'd, I've definitely just had a lot of guilt around that occupation. Do you feel like your art does contribute? I mean, I'm always asking myself that. I mean, I think I'm working towards that, you know? I mean, I think that the way that it contributes now, I've seen... It's 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 like that proof thing, like I was talking to you about performing in New York and not knowing your audience. It's kind of hard. If you're performing in these venues, these institutions, it's hard unless someone writes to you or someone asks you to do another show to really know what your work did when it's in these institutional settings, you know? But if you're doing some kind of applied, almost like applied anthropological work or something where you're working with a community and you're teaching and you're multitasking where your art making is not just, I'm here to do a project, like these are the resources I need, then like you disappear and it's like you were never there. You know, there's so many ways that you can tackle it. So that experience of being in New York I was battling with that a lot, and I told you I wanted to have I had this crisis of thinking maybe I should just stop. But when I was in Chicago, because the community is so tight, I mean, I never questioned these things because I always felt like I was a part of. Um, everyone was growing from one another, and everyone was like getting therapy from one another, and everyone was like inspired by one another or critical of one another, and it was like you just knew where you stood. Mm, And it was just felt, it was a very reciprocating community where everyone's supporting one another's work, but it's, it's a community art practice. So it's really more specific to that community. Mm -hmm. So then it's just leaving that, going to New York, trying to aim to work in these institutions and have this kind of support and then kind of like having this like conflict with the one side, like not really wanting that you know, because I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy those spaces and I don't enjoy, I don't like the vision of who I would have to be to do that. Also just feeling like they don't want me anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think where I'm at right now, my the people that I'd sense right now in this like COVID year and leading up to COVID being in New York and being in this kind of dissatisfying art community, I felt like my work, the people it was really helping was the collaborators for the most part, mm-hmm. you know? Um, because as I've said, it's, the collaborations are very long-term, you know, and there's just like a lot of working through 
and that can feel un- insufficient sometimes, you know? So it's like, I, I, I feel reward growing with other people and making work that's really drawing things from people, drawing things out of people and really giving them a space to be vulnerable and really like changing them and like witnessing like revolutions or evolutions in the people I'm working with. It's really exciting, but it's still a one-to-one or one-to-two or still feels really small. So it's not until then you show it and then you can have some kind of conversation that was someone you tells you that it really touched them or they really moved them or they write to you sometimes like year, like a year later. It's hard to know. Unless you're doing, again, some work that's much more of a social practice, art. Yeah, I, I mean, I share all of this kind of doubts and around my own work. And also the rewards of having one-to-one sort of micro-changes and little revolutions, evolutions, I say. And I think there's a lot of importance there. There can be a lot of reward in just that. Or like, maybe that is the, the tiny change that's like a big change. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's true. It's like, there's also that outward foundation and like the kind of the larger conversation that can come out of those things so that mm-hmm. they sort of reverberate beyond the bedroom, right? Yeah. Like, now that I'm like running through my mind of the collaborations I've had over the past years, I know that I make strong impressions on people when I work with them. Like, I know that I have big impacts on the lives, sometimes good, sometimes bad, um, of the people that I work with. Um, and I will say that I think one thing I'd like to share specifically is the mutuality of someone approaching you to visualize something. So, like, as more of a filmmaker, like, when people have come to me to help them visualize, I'm, like, really, I want to do more of this work. It's really difficult work because someone is giving you such a, often like a very personal piece of their life, you know, and then they're choosing what they're telling you about it. And then they put you in charge of actually trying to like visualize that in a way that's not just replicating the experience. But again, it's, it's you know, it's not that it's insignificant that it's one-to-one or one-to-two or something, but it still always feels like the set is such a charged place of possibility and it's really like a sacred space for me you know mm-hmm. like bringing people together like eating together waking up together like getting ready just like scheduling going through things like trying to you know alternating between like the directing and like the performing and those different head spaces mm-hmm. but like the control aspect too is kind of um it's hard to be it's hard it's hard to be like controlling other people like when you're directing Mm -hmm. there's always a degree like you know your directing style can be so many different things but there's always this degree of like you're telling people what to do so you have to like it's kind of scary yeah you know especially when you're dealing with someone's biographical data and then you're directing other people to respond to that which you're really really distinct from So I find that really, really scary, really thrilling. Things get complicated. Mm -hmm. How is it rewarding and for whom and in which ways? Yeah. And deciding what you take on. Someone might think that you are capable of something. Or they might think that you know more, that you can really respond to something. But then when you really look at it, you're like, can I actually respond? Like, am I the person for this job? And a lot of artists will know that they're not but they want the job so they'll just take the job yeah i mean i think that's a really interesting aspect of connection to capitalism where you know one makes some form of sacrifice even like just sacrificing whether or not 
sac- while sacrificing the clients, so-called, or, or whatever, because mm-hmm. they need the money. Mm-hmm. But they're not necessarily the best brain for the job or, mm-hmm. like, depends on what it is yeah it could be something that's there's no emotions involved but like an artist simply isn't the right fit mm-hmm. they have the opportunity and there's a lot of nepotism mm-hmm. they take it anyway mm-hmm. i want to switch gears slightly and ask you about you as a sexualized body mm-hmm. like, are you a sexualized body yeah <laughs> how does that um i know that that's a huge question there's probably a lot you could say about it so how does that come into play um, with you as an artist, as a working artist? Mm-hmm. So many different ways. Well, something that's coming to mind is actually I often have the experience that women sometimes see me as very feminine, and they think I embody some kind of some kind of ideal femininity, like like almost bohemian goddess feminine to them, which I really makes me really uncomfortable. And they don't tell me this until I get on set and then they show me the costume they want me to wear. And then when I realize that and they tell to start directing me or something, I'm like, this feels so bad. And then the pictures turn out terrible. How would you like to be perceived? I don't know. Maybe like kind of a little bit of like a creature. Like I feel much more comfortable that way. Yeah. Just something that's, Maybe like a friendly monster. <laughs> so is this friendly monster a sexual being in your art? Yeah. Would you prefer that that wasn't part of your artwork? I think sex on my own terms, you know, sexual on my own terms. I haven't really been asked to perform a lot of sex. I've been asked to do a lot of nude stuff. But I have never really performed sex, actually. I, in my own work, I perform intimacy and sensuality, for sure. And I really, like, tend towards that feeling, you know? Like, maybe a sort of uh, hedonistic sensuality. But not something that is... And actually, actually, I should say that I have been criticized for being too sensual in my work by other women, actually. And I've been told I'm too sexual in my own way, you know? So it's not when someone asks, is asking me be sexual. It's that in my work, the way I dance or the way I do something, I've been told that I'm too sexual. And it's in a way that makes, that se- it seems like they're saying you're too sexual. And the problem with that is that I can't take you seriously or that I can't, or that it makes me uncomfortable um, or that I don't like you enjoying yourself. Like, like, I feel like it's also that it's like, I don't like seeing how much you enjoy yourself. Or you enjoy the sensations of your body or something, you know? And that really, um, actually, the last time I got that, it really shifted my dance. And I think it really, really injured. I let it injure me really badly. And I think it really created a lot of the stiffness that I'm dealing with now in Mm. my body. Mm. Because I feel it's a vanity thing. I'm like, if someone's telling me I'm too sexual, they're telling me that I'm vain. And I should, that I should have any humility or something. Okay. And that I, it's um, like hmm, wrong or something to enjoy my body in performance. I mean, I think there's really big divides between what's seen as pornographic and seen as artistic. Yeah. And what about it as a worker? Like mm-hmm. when you're doing a job, and, and I'm curious also like how you distinguish between what you consider a job and what you consider a art. Yeah. But in the situations you consider a job, do you want the same 
friendly monster vibe or read or what kind of how are you sexualized and how would you like to be sexualized hmm I think in work I'm often completely killing my charisma a lot of the time because I don't want to come off as a flirt and I don't want to invite that from men so I'm often like really doling myself in those situations a lot, you know, and just like trying not to be too expressive, trying not to be too embodied so that they look at me as just like a capable worker, mm-hmm. you know, so that I'll keep getting hired or so that I'll, um, yeah, so that I'll be liked and that I won't be seen as a threat or a distraction. Because it's usually male dominated. I'm, I'm often like, even in film, actually, some of the film, if I'm in a creative hat position, then that's a totally different story. But if I'm doing grip or electric for a set, then I just want to basically almost be invisible on the set, you know, Mm -hmm. and just be seen as capable and quick and efficient. Mm -hmm. And in those situations, like, yeah, they'll hit on me all the time in large part because I am the only female on set or I'm one of several, like a few females on set. And I'm often not the only female on set, but in the crew. So then there's these other women that are performing or in front of the camera or something like that, you know, and then they'll also look at me and it feels like there's a confusion in those dynamics. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is. I have ideas about what it is, but the way that there's a lot of good stuff going on with those situations. Sometimes I feel like they pity me. Sometimes I feel like I want to protect them from the directors, the male directors, because I've also witnessed male directors just being incredibly misogynistic towards their actresses and their talents and directing them in ways that are just really like, they're, they're demanding, they're, they're, it's just, it just, for me, on one side, I'm like, you're doing this so badly, I should have your job. But on the other side of it, I'm like, you're treating, like I'm witnessing like really misogynistic behavior. And so sometimes I feel like because I'm on the, there's no, there's a really strong hierarchy and film sets, especially commercial film sets. And I'm not allowed to talk to the director. So it would be like a big no-no for me to step in and say something. So I have to witness sometimes uh, these really fucked up dynamics. And what ends up happening is I end up like communicating with my body language. And then sometimes like I can see that I've rubbed them the wrong way. But it becomes for me really, um, I'm not, I'm just not good at playing the game. I'm not good at um, concealing my feelings. When you say body language, you mean? Glaring. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or just playing the game would just be accepting my, my place and just staying out of it and not showing any reaction or anything like that, you know? But so, but it feels like kind of contradictory what you're saying. On the one hand, you want to be invisible. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you're not good at it. Well, I'm saying I can be invisible. I'm saying that as a worker on the set, that's what I want, I, I I should do and I want to do so that I get the job. But when there's a situation, which is not every time, but when there's a situation where I'm witnessing, not, well, yeah, harassment or just really bad treatment of the talent, I have to contend with the, my space and my job and my being hired again. Mm-hmm. And I have to suppress things I have, but I often end up leaking and mm-hmm. my physicality. Yeah. And it's also just because it's for me, it's a big thing of like, 
I don't want him to think that other people don't see this and aren't registering this. So for me, the compromise is him at least knowing that I see. And that's why I use my eyes and my face a lot. And I, just, I know that ultimately it's going to have the same effect. I'm probably not going to be hired back. They want you to just be like a robot and just be waiting for orders and not have any like personality or unless it's the char it's the charming set personality that you'll fl- you- you'll use your sexuality to embody like oh it's exciting to have a little bit of female simulation on the crew right you know right and i i i will vomit like that feeling in me is like i i can't even do that because i it makes me want to vomit so for me then the ideal thing is just for them to look at me as more genderless or more androgynous or something and just see it wow she's really efficient she's really great to have around she gets shit done and i think i also i can identify with this leaking and this like kind of wanting to perform but not totally being able to mm-hmm. and this leaking through the authentic feelings mm-hmm. that anyways betray my really true emotions about it mm-hmm. and i'm curious like to hear from you about what you know what is is the authentic self the self that would be glaring is like where what is the what if the authentic self were allowed to appear in any of these contexts what would that self look like (laughs) not taking orders and directing everything (laughs) being in control of everything Like, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I really like, I feel comfortable in seats of control. You know, I have the wherewithal to tell people what to do. I don't feel uncomfortable telling people what to do. And I also am very like, I have high standards too. And when I'm witnessing like something being done badly, like I get really frustrated, you know, I get like frustrated on like a visceral level, like, you know, but I'm also very comfortable taking on being in service of people that I respect and whose work I respect, you know, like it's not something where I can't happily embody that, but it's in these situations where I'm doing commercial gigs for like shitty commercials or, you know, music videos or something where, you know, then I'm in this other space where I am in service unhappily, but I'm in crew mindset. So it's like, I'm someone that, like, I fucking hate jobs where there's, like, never anything to do and you're always trying to figure out what needs to be done and, like, the materials are shitty and you can't clean. Like, if it's clean, blah, 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 but if you give me tasks to do and I have the tools to do them, I would prefer to just keep busy and not stop and, like, banter with the crew as an androgynous person, maybe more so. If I can get along with them in that way and banter and they don't sexualize me, which happens has also happened a lot because I've been working some like these more janitor jobs and stuff like that, where I actually like develop relationships with the crew and we go out and have drinks and things like that, you know, so you can actually have that banter and fun. Like I actually feel very comfortable in those workspaces and I feel fine. So it's just so dependent on the constellation of, you know, the, what is the work? Like who's in control? What is my relationship to that person? How are they treating me? How's the crew treating me? What is the crew like? Where the working conditions, do we have the things that we need, you know? This shifts so much my ideal, authentic self in that moment. Because mm-hmm. again, it's authentic for me. I can be authentically happy to be in service mm-hmm. and not feel the need to actually direct because I have a level of respect. So then my orientation going into it, happy to learn, happy to be here. 
But if I'm witnessing, if I don't like the director and I don't like what they're doing, then my control freakness comes out and I want to like control the situation. How do you balance when you are in a situation where you're slightly more creatively involved as a like creative body? Mm-hmm. You represent it on stage and also normally, like I think that having a body that's read as female on stage is mm-hmm. already sexualized, mm-hmm. especially if it's nude, mm-hmm. especially or any kind of depending, there's mm-hmm. still a sexualization. How do you contend with like the representation of your body in work that you don't have creative control over? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it, again, it depends on how I relate to and if I respect the artist in control. Because sometimes I might not necessarily, hmm. can you ask that question in a different way? Well, I think when there's things where you've decided that you're crew and you kind of are like, okay, I'm in service to this other person's vision and I can be invisible perhaps like as much as possible. That's kind of one thing. But I think then there's this other thing, I understanding that you sometimes get hired as an artist, but not as an author. Yeah. Not as a director. Yeah, as a performing body. So you're a performing body and you're there and you've been asked to represent you. You are in the work and in a way you're representing Erica. But in another way, you're a body of becoming part of their work. How do you contend with the misrepresentation? If there's misrepresentation. Yeah. Moments where you feel like, you know, especially if you're saying you like to control something, mm-hmm. you feel like you're doing it and you're in it for the work and mm-hmm. maybe there's some prestige as well mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily like what you're being asked to do or how you may be represented i say no all the time to things unless i'm more desperate for money you know i've done things that have made me a little uncomfortable but i'm like very stubborn about that stuff but that's that that was the issue with new york because i was like you know i could be living more as a performance artist, as a performing body artist. But it makes me feel worse to do that for artists I don't respect than it does to just go and do crew work. I'd rather just go and do crew work when I get desperate, you know, because it makes me feel really sick. Because the thing is, like, there's a lack of rigor in those situations a lot of the time I've picked up on because the the work schedule is often, like, very fast. And especially with, like, the big institutions that would fund the artists that would then hire me, they want things to work very quickly. So there's a lack of rigor. So if there was, like, some problematic identity that I had to embody, if I had the time to really try to find something in that character, or I could tell that the artist was really willing to invest in the discovery of these characters, or there was a more rigorous development process, that would be a different story. But often because these processes are so rushed... It just feels like the emptiness of the representation is very pungent and palpable to me. And that contributes to my disdain because I just feel like a lot of it is really empty. It's like a spectacle, you know, mm-hmm. and they want me to just be a spectacle and then they want to like write their name on it, you know, because it's not if you're using costume and you're using installation. It seems like a lot of times artists can put a lot of effort into all of those things and then just expect it to come together. And maybe because it is more of a spectacle, um, they just don't feel like, they don't feel the necessity to 
invest in the presences of the people they're working with. Like these major artists that are asking like open calls for artists to come in, or maybe they have an assistant and this assistant has picked up on the fact that like you're, they've seen you and other performance artists works and they're like, oh, she's interesting. Or, oh, she's got this physicality. She, I mean, we need someone like that in this group. It's like modeling, right? you right. know, yeah, yeah. it's like just being casted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is like, I'm just trying to specify, this isn't like big artists who are looking for like collaborative team to make a piece over the course of a year. This is jobs that are for festivals and galas and museums and stuff like that. Right. So just, I just wanted to clarify that that's the realm I was talking about. But so then I think it just happens like that because it's just, they're looking, the museum and these institutions are looking for a spectacle and they're looking for something that looks really good photographically. And I think also like there's a lot of artists that get brought into these things that are like up and coming artists that maybe actually just lacking experience. That's something that me and other performance artists or independent choreographers who don't have institutional support contend with when they do get hired because you just feel how low you are on the rung of the ladder when you get this work. Like the fact that they want to work with you is because you don't need that much money. It feels like you're being hired as just a yeah, working body. You know, even like the amount of hours, like them not taking into consideration, like come you, you know, they try to be cute about it and just be like, this is what we have. And it's like, well, could you reconsider that? You've just heard from freelance filmmaker, performance documentarian, interviewer and performing body, Erica Dellenbach. You can find more about them at ericadellenbach.com and in the show notes. We spoke at Porfo Cray's International Artist Residency in March of 2021 in Kumasi, Ghana, an artist space that provides refuge for queer, underground, and radical artists. They need your help now more than ever to resist and hold space in light of the anti-LGBTQIA law in Ghana. You can support their cause through their GoFundMe campaign. Details can be found in the show notes. I'm Mad Kate, and you've been listening to Sweat, a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body in work. The theme music was composed by me and features the voice of performer and actress Lori Baldwin. Please join me again next time for Sweat. It airs every second Tuesday in the month on Collaboradio, Free Radio's Berlin Brandenburg, broadcasting on 88.4 FM in Berlin, 90.7 FM in Potsdam, and streaming online at fr-bb.org. Thanks so much, and until next time.